So today we have Andrew Locke for giving advice for professionals who treat lifters. Um, but we just wanted, I just want to do a segment at the start here for um, our news. Strength Sports News. League news. So we had a, we just came back from nationals and we had little Dan, who's only a 16 year old kid who deadlifted 240 kilos for second place at the national championships in the 67.5 kilo class. Um, that was 3.6 times body weight. Massive, massive deadlift for a 16 year old. Um, he definitely had some struggles during this prep. He did really well at states placing first, and then we only had seven weeks to prep for nationals. Very short prep, um, but we he ended up sustaining a glute injury in the first week. We couldn't do much in squats, which is why he only went one for three in squats, six for six for the rest of his bench and deadlift, but squats suffered. We still ended up with a 195 kilo squat, 110 bench, and a 240 kilo deadlift. Um, few interesting points coming up with powerlifting or a few, uh, bit of news about powerlifting there's the now triple crown for GPC which is anyone who can win a sanctioned meet within their state um, then win state championships in their weight class and then take first place at nationals will have a shared pool prize of $10,000 now they did run this about three or four years ago and only one lifter won it and that was one of our lifters and it's very, very, very tough to get. So I'll be, surpri- I'll be interested to see how difficult or easy this might be. Uh, one of our lifters are going to attempt it, uh, Sarah Rainbow, and we've got a very conservative plan coming into giving it, giving it a crack. Basically, we'll take the first combat 85%, next combat 90%, then we'll go hard at nationals. Now, this if it, that's if it works with um, Pro Raw, and Kearns as she wants to go to America uh, next year. Um, I had an interesting conversation with Sarah and a few other people about my predictions in powerlifting that the sport is really changing, becoming a professional sport. And when you involve money, it changes a lot of things. So one of my predictions with powerlifting is that there's going to be a lot of, um, that the sport is no longer about, you know, how well you can do at each single comp, but how well you can do over multiple comps, lean internationals, given that there's prize money now, we have different heats to get there of qualifying, to be able to qualify for this prize money. People will know have to know how to perform over three, four, five competitions in a year. And this has vastly changed to how it used to be in just the last couple of years, where you know I would work really hard for a lifter to do really well at one, maybe two competitions. Um, but we only had to do well at one, or two competitions we didn't have to do well at three competitions now when we do push three four five competitions that is very very difficult on and hard on the lifter's body so you know i have a bit of experience because i do have one triple crown winner um and the only triple crown winner so we're gonna we're gonna have a some very smart periodization for this and i think we will use these competitions that she needs to qualify for triple crown as part of her prep so let's uh, move over to the interview and see you on the other end. The Muscle Nerd Podcast for everything powerlifting and sports sciences. Yeah. 
episode. Welcome to the Muscle Motor Podcast. This is Gus Cook, head powerlifting coach of Lifters League, and today here we have Andrew Locke. Yep, great to be here, Super Gus. Always great to be the health professional who's associated with Lifters League. So today we are talking about advice for prof- for professionals who treat lifters. Um, yeah. Let's uh, let's talk about. Let's first talk about how your bench prep is going. Yep, I do think that if you um, are a professional who treats a certain sport, that you probably should be able to do that sport yourself. Mm-hmm. So I've always lifted, deadlifted, squatted, bench pressed, done every sort of bodybuilding exercise of all time. So now, at this point, it's a particular goal of getting two hundred kilos in a comp in a bench. And you've been you've done a few comps trying to get this 200 kilo bench this is your <laughs> second attempt this year third attempt second attempt this year yep second comp and the third is where the third comp coming up yes how have you felt about this prep compared to your last two? Oh, the best prep in fact it's probably the most real prep i've done so of course it's it's been programmed by yourself which has made a humongous difference i think i probably um was at this time i'm allowed to just simply do my work and whatever you said i've had to have done and that's made the biggest difference, as we say, just follow the program. As long as you follow the program, something's going to work really well. So the volumes are significantly huge that you've put together. It takes off the uh, cognitive load of having to worry about and think about your own training. I, I enjoyed immensely that it took me three hours to get through just my bench workout recently. Mm-hmm. So the volumes are great, but the physical changes are huge. Mm-hmm. Everything's growing. My arms are growing, my chest's growing. So really super happy about this bench prep. There ain't, if there isn't discomfort, there's no adaptation. Absolutely. It's been awesome. So I really enjoyed this prep, and I think, um, oh, this might open a 190, and then 200 should be the second attempt. Cool. Not going to go straight for the 200? No. <laughs> Mate, I'll, I'll just make sure I get something in the record book first. <laughs> How's the food coming down? The food's been good, really. It's been actually, um, strangely enough, headed towards cleaner food more now than I ever have. So I've been super big on organic eggs, organic meat, and large amounts of that and rice, and pretty much stays super clean. Has that helped with the appetite? You know, you struggled with eating? Yeah, feeling a lot better. The appetite's been really good. I must admit, I've been using a, a product from Big Boys, uh, their Mass Stack, which is really good at appetite enhancement. Mm-hmm. So you don't tend to feel full, you tend to keep to want to eat. Mm-hmm. And that's really made a great difference. I deal with this quite a bit with lifters who struggle with appetite and this doesn't come down to calories because we had one person today who just wants to gain weight and the issue wasn't calories. The fact that he has no appetite was a sign of you know, inefficient nutrients coming in. So we changed a couple of his toddler's foods, eating more real foods made a huge difference to his appetite. Well, Over that's a key. Mm. And that's uh, something I hadn't known about, but something I've just found has worked for me and yeah, mm. there's something you notice. It's a really good quality food you can keep eating. Mm-hmm. But crap quality food doesn't do it for you. No. The appetite sits, the body doesn't want it. gut for too long. Yeah, that's a huge difference. So yeah, it has been large amounts of just really organic food. Mm-hmm. So I love the organic eggs. It's been huge. Um, you have a few, you have a few workshops and talks coming up over the next couple of months and you're doing the Swiss Symposium in Canada. That's yeah. correct. Yeah, the Swiss uh, conference in Canada. It's, a fantastic honor to get invited to that. It's the Society for Weight Training Injury Specialists, mm-hmm. and the best presenters in the world have always been presenting there. And 
this year they invited me to speak about my special um, approach to shoulder pain. So I'm doing a 90-minute presentation on a permanent solution to anterior shoulder pain for bench pressing. Is this your first talk then? First time I've ever talked at um, Swiss, yes. I think it's the, I'm the first Australian physiotherapist to ever get invited. Or Australian professional, I know. I think there's another coach who might have been there. Mm. So it's a, it's a huge honour and amongst, you know, standing amongst the Giants, Ed Cohen will be there. He does, he'll be talking on something and the legendary Bill Kazmaier is there. I think Dave Tate's there, Professor Stuart McGill. Mm. There's 30 different top presenters in the mm. world presenting over the three days. Mm. There's some very big names there. I'm going to head down myself and just to increase my education and learn more. <laughs> there won't be much sleep. No. <laughs> it's going to be busy three days. So if anyone's interested, that's on the 25th, 26th, 27th of October, um, somewhere near Toronto. Yep. But if you are looking for more details, you can go to SwissSWIS2018.com and they can find details there, right? All the details will be there, hotels and everything. Yep. Cool. So it's where the best coaches in the world will be at one point in the year. And you also coming up in a few weeks, you have New Zealand. Sure, we're going to be presenting with uh, Australian strength coach Sebastian Irib. We're going to do our three workshops on deadlifting, squatting, and bench pressing uh, just in Auckland, one day on each. And really looking forward to that. It's going to be fantastic. Okay, so now let's move into our topic. To submit listener mail for questions to be answered on our podcast, then email me, gus at musclenerd.com.au. If you're interested in visiting our facility, Lictors League, or to get one-on-one coaching, programming, and nutrition plans from our team, then contact us via our website, www.liftersleague.com.au or email info at liftersleague.com.au and one of our staff will be in touch. Or if you're not a local, we have an in-house online coaching team where we all work together to get you to your performance and body composition goals. Simply visit my website www.musclenode.com.au or email me gus at musclenode.com.au and I will be in touch to see how we can help you. Topic of the day. And the topic is advice for professionals who treat lifters. So you're the perfect person to bring on for this topic. Yep. So let's go on to a few questions. So what is your advice for professionals who treat lifters? Well, as I said, the most important thing is if you want to be a professional who treats lifters, you must start learning to lift yourself. And you must understand the different forms of lift. You know, often I run into uh, patients who come to me and say, a doctor told them that they should never deadlift. And I asked them, well, did the doctor ever deadlift themselves? Do they look like a person who's ever deadlifted? And the answer usually is, no, that doctor definitely doesn't deadlift. And, you know, someone will be told, don't squat. And the doctor will say, you know, squatting's bad for you. And I said, well, did he explain what squat? Is it a sumo? Is it a conventional? Is it a front squat? Is it an Olympic squat? Is it a hack squat? Is it a sissy squat? There's so many variations. So if you're a professional who treats athletes in a particular sport, you need to know the sport. You need to know the mechanics of the sport. Mm -hmm. So the best advice I'll always give for any professional who's treating lifters is that you must understand what those people do. It's impossible to treat a person in a sport you don't understand the mechanics of. Mm -hmm. I don't do a lot of golf, so I don't get golf players. Mm -hmm. I don't treat a lot of tennis, 
So I don't treat a lot of tennis players. Sounds very much like how how I would approach coaching. You know, I do a lot of powerlifting, so I should work with powerlifters. <laughs> very much. Um, but similar approach, you shouldn't be a coach unless you've had the experience with lifting yourself. Yeah. I have an acronym, it's called ASK, and it's you know, ability, skill, and knowledge. And I, I think it might be similar to, to what you're talking about. You know, you need the ability, um, you need the ability to be able to do the lifting, you yep. need the skill to be able to teach people, and you need to have a background knowledge. It's huge, yeah. I've got one of the biggest libraries you could ever see on all lifting sports. Mm-hmm. And I've collected it over 20 years. And it's all based around these pieces of information from, you know, all the way back in the 1800s from people who have observed strongman training all the way to some of the latest research now. And all those things are just super invaluable. Mm-hmm. So as a professional, it's up to you to really keep learning about everything that's in the sport. And always, I always say, go check that the people who you are getting your advice from have good references in regard to what they're saying. Mm. You know, there's Ripito, who I think seems to have no clue at all. He wrote a book called Starting Strength, the impressive looking book, but there's not a single reference in it that I could find. Mm-hmm. And that's what I came and looked at. It's a, it's a book of opinion. So when you are getting your information, you want to get a book or information that gives you references that scientifically makes sense. Mm-hmm. So that you can check up to see that's not just someone's opinion. Mm-hmm. I think Leone posted up something before. An opinion is the lowest form of knowledge. <laughs> Pretty much. Just if you say it loud enough and are rude enough to enough people, you know, you'll get some followers. <laughs> so we get a lot of phone calls when we're booking people in about people want, needing to bring in scans. So they always ask us, do they need to bring in scans? So how important are scans? Well, that's a, a huge thing, is that when a patient comes in and sees me and they'll bring in their scans, they'll often put them on the table and start pulling them out. And I always tell them, put them away. Don't want to see them. The problem is if you see a professional who wants to look at your report before they've assessed you, then they're going to be influenced by what that report says. They won't think clearly. So if they get a scan that comes back and says there's a certain disc problem at a certain level, they probably won't listen to you correctly to realize that perhaps there's a problem somewhere else. That might be a false positive. So my work is always, I say to people, put the scans away, put the reports away. We're looking at them last. Scans are useful at the end to confirm or deny what my hypothesis will be. So my my assessment is hugely based around um, listening to the patient and finding out what their particular problem is. And I think that's the most important thing is to realise that the person who you're treating will give you far more information than a scan will. Because they'll tell you what their pain is, they'll tell you what their problems are, they'll tell you what aggravates it, what eases it. Now a scan's not gonna tell you that. A scan's just gonna tell you what anatomically you can see. You gotta find out whether those two things relate. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of times there's a lot of false positives. Mm-hmm. So, you know, accordingly we know that about 80% of all MRI scans will have a disc bulge on them. Mm-hmm. But 80% of people aren't having problems. And if your scan happens to have a disc bulge on it, but you're getting around okay all day and it hurts when you do a certain, and your back hurts when you do a certain thing, well, your disc bulge looks the same at all those times. So what is the difference? It's usually biomechanics. So the mechanics of how a person moves is far more important than what their scans say. Uh, Many professionals, you know, many professionals do treat pain, uh, but you don't, what do you do? 
Yeah, I think when I first started out as a, you know, being a physio officially, is that you're time poor as a professional. You're usually booking people in for 15 minutes. You've got to have them, you know, somehow you're supposed to assess them, treat them and reassess them, give them a plan and be out the door in 15 minutes usually. Now, what that does is it causes you to have to think that you have to give a person relief at that point. Mm-hmm. My appointments are quite a bit longer than that. My approach is I treat the problem, not the pain. So I want to know where the pain might be, but I want to know why you get pain. Now, if I can remove the reason you get pain from a biomechanical source, if I can teach you how to move correctly, if I can find your muscle weaknesses and then prescribe exercise, then you're going to get rid of your pain. Your pain will go. Mm. I don't need to put my thumb on it and say, does this hurt? The last thing I ever do as a professional is when somebody comes in and says to me, "Uh, my shoulder hurts here. That's the last thing I'm going to do in an assessment is bother to push that mm-hmm. because I already know that hurts. Yeah. Whereas most professionals you'll tend to find it hurts here. They push it and go, does it hurt there? Well, of course it just hurts. Like, that's what I just pointed out to you. Mm-hmm. So their point going, okay, I'm going to treat pain. I will look for everything possible to find out why that point's causing you pain. Everything that doesn't cause you pain, everything you don't know about. And if I can find that there's problems that are causing the pain, then we don't treat the pain. We treat the problem and we solve the problem. Mm-hmm. And that's a permanent solution. So what what is it what is an example? Let's go with the shoulder let's go with the front shoulder pain. What would what is a what are a couple of examples that you may So a classic one there is what usually gets misdiagnosed as biceps tendonitis. Mm-hmm. So the personal point to the front of the shoulder, which appropriately where the bicep tendon is. Mm-hmm. Now if you look at where the bicep tendon's nerve supply comes from, which is a musculocutaneous nerve it has the same nerve root as the suprascapular nerve, which supplies the infraspinatus muscle. The infraspinatus muscle is an external rotator. Usually it's overpowered by your strong internal rotators. It's probably going to be the cause and it's, within it will be trigger points that you'll find if um, a professional pushes on them, they'll reproduce anterior shoulder pain. What's happening there is you've got a strained infraspinatus that's causing the cortex of your brain to think that it's at the front, the front the musculocutaneous nerve. So it's called a referred pain, but I think really we should call it a misconstructed pain. Then we have to go to the reason for well, why is infraspinatus strained? Because it's strained because of what is the weakness? Usually it's going to be a weakness of your scapular stabilizers. So there's going to be scapular stability work to check. So when we really go back to it, if you push the front of the shoulder and stick some you know, dry needles in it or you know, ultrasounded or do whatever, you've totally missed that the whole point of this person's cause is way back close to their spine. Mm-hmm. And that's the way I approach things. You look for the source of the problem. You look for the weaknesses that are causing something to cook, to um, give some form of distress. So yeah, now that's the beauty of having experience myself because of course I went through two years of misdiagnosed shoulder pain when I was a about 18. So that was a great experience for me as, a, as not even a professional at that point, is to realise that, you know, you keep searching for different people to try and give you a magic answer. Mm-hmm. So it's really it's just biomechanics. How do you go about assessing patients for the first time? Assessing patients for the first time for professionals, it's so important that you spend a lot of time talking to the patient. As I said, the first thing is they come in with scans, put the scans away. We'll look at those last. I want to know where the person's pain or problem is. Now, if a person says to me, I've got hip pain, 
I make them show me what they call the hip. Because anatomically, most patients haven't been to university and they probably don't know exactly what the hip is. And they'll point to something. Well, it might not be the hip. And if you just listened to them and said it was hip pain, then you would have been wrong if they suddenly point to their lower back and they're calling that the hip, which is very common. Mm-hmm. So it's important when you, you, you work with a client or a patient that you see exactly, get them to point where their problems are. Now, patients will tell you all the right things if you ask the right answers. So the thing about it is you need to ask the right questions. You need to ask what aggravates a problem. And if, for example, there's a problem in deadlifting, it might be that there's a certain weight point where it becomes a problem. Or it might not be. It might simply be getting in the position might be the problem. You need to define, it's not just deadlifting hurts me, it's, okay, does deadlifting hurt you when you lift 60 kilos? Does it hurt you when you do conventional? Does it hurt you when you do sumo? You need to pull apart what the person feels a problem is. And if you ask the right questions, you'll keep getting further and further into it. So you want to know what it's like in the morning. You want to know what the problem's like in the evening. You want to know what their behavior is. Does it hurt at work? What's their, what do they do for work? You want to know what other professionals have seen, what have other people done, has there been any success, has there been any failures, anything's made them worse. Mm-hmm. So usually our subjective discussion will tell me what the problem is before I start assessing it physically. Mm-hmm. Because I'll have teased it out of them, whether there's associated problems. Sure, it might be lower back, but do you get tight hips? Yeah, well, great, it tells me a little more about it. Gives me a clue about what the structure might be. So you ask a lot of questions. And um, you know, I learned that from postgraduate studies in spinal work. These are things you always ask. You ask lots and lots of questions that are heading towards a hypothesis creation. Mm-hmm. And then the assessment work is really looking to see whether it confirms your hypothesis. Mm-hmm. So we create a hypothesis from our subjective, we test it in our assessment, and then we have measures to do which will then apply exercise changes and then reassess what we find to be a problem. So if I've got somebody who's got a problem with um, a squat pattern, I might apply some banded work, I might apply a particular muscle movement, go back and test the squat again. Mm-hmm. So it's often it's test and retest, test mm-hmm. and retest. And that's one of the best pieces of advice I'll ever give a, a professional is always test the thing you think isn't going to change. Mm-hmm. Because if you've made an assumption that what you're doing is doing one thing, you might miss it that it actually does something else. And it's just because you don't think it's going to change is the reason you haven't tested it. So I learned that when I was doing a master's degree. I was working in one of the hospitals. And the supervisor pulled me aside and said, you know, you're making people better, but you're not learning anything because all you're doing is you know it works. You're here to learn about what you don't know that works. Mm -hmm. Test out the things that you don't know and then reassess. Mm -hmm. And that's the way I do things now. I will always test and reassess, even if I think it shouldn't change anything. I'll I'll reassess it because I might miss something. Mm -hmm. And that keeps me very engaged because occasionally you do pick up things that you hadn't expected. And then that makes you a better professional for the future because you start to want to know why did that change. Mm -hmm. This is extremely similar to what we do with coaching. It's exactly the same thing. And we dig very, very far into people's history depending on on, why they come into us. Today we had a uh, chick who wants to do bikini and we strip down her history to the point where we can figure out what 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 does her history tell us about moving into the future? Mm. You know what what food what state is her metabolism? What state what can what training condition? What, what's her training capacity? 
what's her movement like and what's her ability to be able to learn new things. Mm. Yeah. Luckily enough, she has a powerlifting history. It's going to be a lot easier. But we've had to dig into up to 10 years of eating and training history and come up with very you know, severe issues. So that our, our predictions for some things would have been um, very slow, very slow progress or maybe extreme, extreme fat gain, which happens with people who do severe dieting. But you know, this is, it's just uh, funny to see how similar the approach is where we you know, do a lot of assessments, we test something, which could be a training program, training protocol, food protocol, and then we get them in every one to four weeks to reassess, to see how it's going and see how that fits into our long-term plan, if it's fitting our long-term plan, and then make small adjustments along the way. And this is basic to science, isn't it? It doesn't matter what the science is. Mm-hmm. If you create a hypothesis, your job there is to somewhat almost disprove your hypothesis, mm-hmm. to test everything around it. Mm-hmm. And if at the end you're left with the same answer, you've done very well. And that's one of the big reasons that I really have an interesting time with patients who come in and I'll say, okay, what's your problem? And they'll start, I've got a, and I immediately stop and say, no, I don't want to know what you've been told your diagnosis is. I don't want a diagnosis. I don't want to hear whether you've got a, a bulge in the scan. I ask what your problem is. I want to know what your problem is. What can't you do? What can you do? Where's your problem that you've come to see me about? You don't come to see me about a disc bulge. Mm-hmm. You come to see me about maybe what the behaviour of that bulge is, what the disc problems might be in movements. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're after. So I always define it. Don't ever be defined by a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And that's what I try and make sure my patients learn very quickly. You're not a diagnosis, you're a person. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you go about, how, how do you think about, how do you think about problems? What is your problem solving method? Yeah, the, the most obvious way I look at it is because I actually like working with people. Mm-hmm. I look at um, the question they ask are very much looking at, here's a person who has specific goals, for example. So one of the things I'll always ask a person is, what are your goals? Why do you train? What is the point of your training? Are you doing this for fun or are you doing this for competition? I've got to know what people's motivations are. So if I can know what the person's motivation is, it helps me to plan where their recovery's got to go and how important it is. As you know, someone might say, um, can I deadlift next month? Well, if you're going to be entering the big dogs comp and you've got lots of money on the line, there's a fair chance you will. I've got to do my best to get you there. But if you're a recreational athlete and you've got a few kids at home and your money depends upon you going to work, it's probably not a good idea then, perhaps if you just come in with a fresh problem. Mm-hmm. So my approach is looking at individuals and what's important for a cost to benefit ratio of what their endeavor is. And being able to frame it in such a way that they understand the impact this will have upon their life and what the expected time it might take to recover. So I've got to get, for example, a good athlete back faster for competition work than I might have to do with a person who's it's not as important in their goals. It's just part of their lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So this is the approach I tend to take. I, I think I'm looking at a whole person. What are the behavioural influences? What's their social influences? And I'm listening to mechanics. I'm listening to what they do when they sit. What do they feel when they drive? What do they do when they walk? Mm-hmm. You know, what's it like when they sleep? So I'm looking at things that are telling me about the influence of gravity, I'm looking at the influence of certain structures under different conditions, and movement patterns come to mind immediately. 
So this is my way of assessing, is to ask a lot of questions that are leading me towards a final hypothesis. So it's a bit like panning for gold. You keep going further and further and further until you've got your answers. And then it's time to test. Mm-hmm. Test and retest. I think this, again, and it's remarkable how similar these, these methods are, where it's exactly the same thing if someone comes to us and they have a competition. You know, we have a few, you know, a few niggles turn in that, could, that can turn pretty bad during a prep, but they're prepping for pro rule. It's mm. like, well, we're going to best manage this. We still got to get through our training because everyone's going to come up with these problems. And if you're the first person to give up on those problems, then you're never <laughs> going to make it as a lifter. And if, but if someone, you know, can't pull off the floor, let's say they can't do delis off the floor, they have to do it out of a rack. Well, if you're just a stay-at-home mum who doesn't compete, then that's completely fine. It is. It's quite fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably one of the most amusing cases I had, which, funny enough, wasn't a lifter, was actually a golf player. Mm-hmm. Who came in one day and basically just fell on the on the track on the table, and all he did was turn his head and looked up at me and said, "I'm playing golf tomorrow." It wasn't "Can I play?" It is "I am playing golf tomorrow." Mm-hmm. Now assessing him, he was one of the most injured people I'd seen as far as the back goes. He was really in significant danger and significant problems, mm-hmm. but there was a lot of money on the line at that point. Mm-hmm. So he was going to play the next day. My job was to enable him to basically get to the course to play. Mm-hmm. Now, funny enough, he ends up winning a match play comp because his opponents saw that he was a guy who was very debilitated and the opponent's approach was to try and intimidate him by overhitting the ball. The opponent made all the mistakes and the client couldn't make any mistakes because he couldn't hit it hard enough. Mm-hmm. He had to play such a conservative game. Mm-hmm. So sometimes there's even a benefit to being injured. But there was a person who had it been just a regular person down the street who was, no, seriously, you're not playing tomorrow. Yeah. With him, there was no question. Mm-hmm. And that's how we deal with pe- different people, different goals. Mm-hmm. You said that to we had one of our lifters who had a back injury, and um, we got we ended up put you end up you ended up advising to pull her out of the competition. Mm. Do you remember Cynthia? Mm. Yeah. So what was do you, do you remember why we had to had to do that? <laughs> I don't even remember what I had for breakfast this morning. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. What's the most What's the most common problem you treat? Well, the most common problem we'll say is lower back injury with deadlifting. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's going to be the most common thing your, your doctor's going to see. That's the most common thing the surgeon's probably going to see. And that's why you talk to medical professionals and when you mention deadlifting, they say that deadlifting is bad for people. Mm-hmm. And that is the most common problem I, I would say I would encounter when somebody comes in and says, I've hurt my back deadlifting and usually goes, oh, it's not the first time they've ever done it. Mm-hmm. Now, the interestingly here, what is the first thing that they're told by their docs or professionals to do? rest mm-hmm. now we know the definition of insanity is to do the same thing and expect a different outcome mm-hmm. so you get these people who get hurt deadlifting and they take a rest and sure enough they might feel better in four weeks mm-hmm. then they'll go back and deadlift again has anything biomechanically been addressed by the medical professional mm-hmm. no and so guess what nothing's changed and they go back and they get injured again yeah. now there's no mystery there because the problem is the person's got a biomechanical inefficiency somewhere, a weakness somewhere, and rest is the last thing you want to do with that person. Mm-hmm. Hell, you know, from day one, you know, you get back in the gym. We start doing something mm-hmm. wherever possible, pretty much on 99% of people. Mm-hmm. So if I can, if I see a, um, a lower back problem, for example, that might relate to deadlifting, there's a few things we look for. One of the most cardinal important rules we look for is a thing called centralizing. 
Mm-hmm. If a person's got a sciatic injury, we work my call it a sciatic distribution, where they might have pain in the calf muscle and pain in the back, then with centralising, we're looking to take the pain away from the peripheral area and bring it back to the centre. So if a person's got, say, a 2 out of 10 calf pain, but with my movements and tests, I can get rid of that calf pain, but they get a 4 out of 10 back pain, as a result, that's what we call a good sign. Because what's happened is the pain has gone to the centre. The location's important, not as much the intensity. But if I had a person who had a 4 out of 10 back pain, I'd get rid of it. Oh, they've got a 2 out of 10 calf pain, that's making them worse. Mm-hmm. So knowing that centralising is a cardinal rule, which as far as I remember, it hasn't been taught at university here, mm-hmm. and yet it's one of the most important things we actually do in, as a professional in postgraduate work. I don't even think they mentioned it in the master's program I did. I just um, learned a lot about this through the McKenzie Institute International, who are spinal specialists. Yet it's such an important principle is that it's location, not the intensity that we look for. Mm-hmm. So one of the early stage things I'm looking for, what positions and movements does a person have that centralises their pain? All right, so I'm looking at their daily activities. What produces your leg pain? What produces your back pain? That helps me determine what direction I've got to take that person then to bring the centralising together. Mm-hmm. Now, quite often, of course, people have hurt their backs because their spines create a flexion movement under load. The spine is flexing under load. And as a result, there's a mechanical breakdown. There's a buckle at one point, which injures the structure. We might even say the disc at that point. So we look at things as saying, okay, you've got a weakness in somewhere in that position. Let's find out the weakness that caused you to buckle. So then we look at um, work which comes off a, a concept we call the neutral zone, is that if you have an injured area, that injured area basically is never exactly the same again. And if it's a ligament that's been stretched, you've got to teach the muscles that can be around the area to strut it up. So we teach the muscle groups how to stop the buckle occurring. Now, we work early into neutral spine for a lot of these people. Doesn't mean they're never going to go into flexion again. It just means in the early healing phase, we're going to stay into neutral, we're going to protect the spine, turn a lot of core muscles on, turn on the abs, turn on the glutes, make everything strutted up, check the movement pattern under that. Once we've got a person who's moving well with that, we may have to move back into flexion if we've got a top level lifter because that's how you lift the biggest weights off the ground. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's the biggest weights in the world records are not set in neutral spines in conventional deadlifting. Mm-hmm. We better admit it. Mm-hmm. Is that there is flexion in lifting when you're doing conventional work. The biggest debate in powerlifting there is about <laughs> debate. Well, there's no debate when we look at the evidence here, Gus, really. When you look at every video that's ever been set, Mm-hmm. or done of every conventional world record, they're all done in flexed thoracic and lumbar spines. But what you're seeing there is a person who can hold that position and not buckle. Mm-hmm. So that's A-OK. If you can hold your flexion position with strength, you're not, you're not going to get hurt. But if you flex under that load like a fishing rod does with a big fish underneath it, that's when the danger is. Mm-hmm. So from the neutral spine, I'm going to teach you how to hold a flexion spine at a top level lifter. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't need to be scared of that if we know what we're doing. Yeah. But if you don't know what you're doing, be very scared of it. Don't it's, do something you don't know how to do. That comes to basically all our lifters and and we all, we all teach them to round most yeah, thoracic, thoracic mm. rounding. Um, the, the, the difference between, what would, it's the most, for us it's the most common 
pain where people get is from deadlifts like mm. when they come to us and so but most of the time it's nothing to do with the integrity of the lower back but it's also always to do with the technique and yes. it also seems so weird to them that the first thing we do is we make them bend over more hips are higher and it's just the complete opposite to what they think is right yes and then we give them slight rounding in the upper back and tell them it's fine if you're doing the technique right if you're bracing correctly if you're if you build all the tension will allow you will allow you to do it if you have enough if you have enough experience and it turns out to be perfectly fine and they end up having no pain whatsoever and it was nothing to ever do with the integrity of their back it was all to do with the technique and that's the interesting thing is that's why great coaching is super important Mm -hmm. because crap coaching can't teach you that Mm -hmm. you can't perform this way we've got to look at great deadlifting technique is akin to driving a formula one car it's a great vehicle it's top of the line but don't put a learner driver into it because they will crash you can't put a learner driver into a formula one car and you can't put a novice into a top level great technique Mm -hmm. because they haven't learned to control anything yet Mm -hmm. they haven't got their l plates yet they haven't got their p plates Mm -hmm. they haven't got the experience to know how to hold their bodies together Mm -hmm. and you know ed cohen in, in a conversation i had he said it takes about three years, he thinks, before you can actually have a great deadlift technique. Mm-hmm. That takes a lot of work. I would say that's about, that's pretty correct. <laughs> that's good. It, it? takes a long time. We take, it, it takes a long time to see. We have people who've been on the team for at least about, let's say a few of the people on the team have been on about two years and still don't have the proficiency, no matter how much I've worked with them. Like it's and To most people, it is far beyond what most people do. But when you're comparing to someone like Bo yep. or Sarah, yeah, the, if it, she is just perfect. Yep. Um, the few years of work there. Mm-hmm. It hasn't come overnight. Mm-hmm. And it comes from great training, frequent training, and lots of practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is the importance about great coaching is you've got to have someone who's actually got a good understanding of technique and can talk to you about it. Even simple things like we spend most of our time with the first, at least the first three months, we do kettlebell work. Mm. with all our novice lifters yeah goblet squats kettlebell swings um udls it's simple hard to mess up and makes their body very strong and we can teach all the techniques of stability tension with just using the kettlebell and they're never going to hurt themselves no not a chance doing kettlebell (laughs) that's what i always advocate as well i think it's fantastic as a Mm -hmm. tool yeah so these are the important things that as a medical as a professional in this field that I really look for is um you know where's the experience of the individual what have I got to adjust for them and you got to adjust it for whatever level of technique that person is mm-hmm. people need to respect our sport and you know what we do the same way you would expect it if you want to take up golf or tennis and expect it to play at a top level you're not going to do it in a year mm-hmm. you're not going to play in the Australian Open if you just buy a tennis racket and hope to you know hit the ball yeah. you're going to need coaches mm-hmm. you're going to learn your forehand mm-hmm. you're going to learn the backhand you're going to learn to serve it's a lot of complexity to it mm-hmm. and you got to hit Millions and millions of tennis balls. Yeah. And here, you got to do millions and millions of reps. Yeah. Seems quite, it's quite daunting to some people telling them how long it takes. People ask me how long has that fight taken? It's like, it's been 10 years. <laughs> I've been this ball for 10 years. It's a lot of work. Yeah. So we look at coaching and you know, my rehab approach. I almost look at, once again, using a Formula One analogy is that I'm sort of like the pit crew. You know, there's something wrong with the car. You bring the car in. I figure out what's wrong with it. I fix it up. And then you're back on the track with the, with the bosses. Mm-hmm. You're racing under the coaches again. Mm-hmm. You know, the coaches and ourselves, we have a symbiotic relationship. Mm-hmm. My job is to make sure I fix up whatever's there. And then the coach's job is to make it run the best it can. Mm-hmm. 
and make that drive work. And the scientific method's the same for both? Oh, absolutely. It's the principles of science are basically straightforward and constant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's nothing um, conflicting or contradictory about it at all. Mm-hmm. So if people want to get in contact with you, where, they can, where can they do that? Well, it's always, if they're in Brisbane, naturally they contact Lifters Leap. Mm-hmm. As I'm up here every three or four weeks. Uh, in Melbourne, they can contact me uh, usually just by my mobile number. Mm-hmm which is 045176, was it? Jeez, I have to remember that one. <laughs> mm, geez, I should have to check it again. I'd say go to the, go to the um, Facebook page, Functional Strength Rehabilitation. Send me a message, then I'll be able to send you the details. But I'm usually booked out about five weeks ahead there too. Well, we'll put your contact details in the, uh, yeah. in the description. <laughs> That's probably the best way to go. Um, all right, cool. Well, that I guess that... that is everything. Uh, thank you for coming on board. I'm oh, looking forward to uh, bench pressing now. Yeah. Getting a session in. What's today? Uh, today, just uh, it's our deload time, so it's... Uh, yeah, seven days now. Yeah, four sets tonight of just one sixty by two. Then one more session after that and that's it. One or two? Yeah, I'll have to check what you've written down for me. Cool. I only check it every day. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic, Dr. Gus. Hope that helps us guys. Keep it If you want more content, find our blog at www.liftersleague.com.au and read from our contributing authors. Or find my personal blog at www.musclenerd.com.au To see more into what we do, follow me and my team on social media for Facebook and Instagram. For me, search at musclenerd. For Lifters League, search at Lifters League. For Pip, search at Pip Brown. For Leone, search at Switchblade21.